Welcome back to another special summer episode of Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and this podcast is my way of sharing tips on composing, songwriting, and occasionally the music business. You can find all the episodes for free at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. In the last special episode, we got to hear from two entertainment lawyers about how to get your music into films and TV without getting screwed by a bad contract. In this episode, we hear the story of someone who did get screwed by the system, back when the music business was a lot shadier. In the second part of this episode, we get to hear a more philosophical talk about giving your music away for free. When does it make sense to offer free downloads? And should you let someone else use your music in a film for free? Stick around to find out. In this first segment, filmmaker Jason DeBose came over to talk with me about a documentary he's producing called The Music Never Dies. It tells the tale of older jazz musicians who never quite got the credit or royalties they deserved for their contributions to the music industry. One such musician, Jimmy Norman, had to keep gigging at age 74 just to scrape by, even though he had worked with the likes of Jimi Hendrix and Bob Marley, and he co-wrote the Rolling Stones hit Time Is On My Side. I came on the road with, with my record watching the, the Rolling Stones version go up the charts. Right. You know, and I just kept climbing and just kept climbing. I went to uh, BMI. They didn't even know who I was. You heard correctly. BMI, responsible for collecting royalties and paying musicians, didn't know who Jimmy was. That's a little clip from the trailer of The Music Never Dies. Now let's get on to my talk with filmmaker Jason DeBose. Tell me about this documentary that you're working on. Well, we are looking at the careers, both in retrospect and in the present day, of a handful of jazz musicians who our director met in New York he just networked, uh, found his way to a number of jazz musicians whose music he'd grown up listening to. And for him, the spark was when he read about the story of this Jimmy Norman. Jimmy Norman is, among other things, uh, the singer-songwriter that is known for having written the Rolling Stones hit, uh, the lion's share of the lyrics, I should say, of the Rolling Stones hit, Time Is On My Side, which is the first top 10 Rolling Stone song to in the U.S., so basically the first chart-topping hit. Jimmy Norman was hired to write the lyrics that were compounding on the lyrics written by another musician. And literally, the song before it was Time Is On My Side. Yes, it is. And every lyric that came beyond that is Jimmy Norman's work. And his credit on this, the lyrics that became the the big Rolling Stones hit were slowly misappropriated in such a way that his name was on an early copy of the record, but not the ones that followed. And, you know, they moved the royalty distribution from BMI to ASCAP. And by the time it got to ASCAP, his name wasn't on it at all. And there was no way to prove that his name was ever on it. So he spent basically 1964 to 2011, being well aware this was his song and that the Rolling Stones are obviously mega millionaires by that point 
and he spent most of his life living gig to gig, selling off occasional pieces of other parts of his career, almost like eBay style, just to stay alive, getting into his 70s. And he's literally playing uh, steakhouses, touring whenever he could, until his death at age 74. And the Rolling Stones are playing crazy arenas, and they're on private planes, and it's pretty well documented that they spend a handful of time in France to avoid uh, tax obligations to the United Kingdom, and all of it is super clever businessmanship, but kind of hard to watch when you know that you had a part of building the fortune that made hiring people like Jerry Ragavoy, the he's the songwriter-producer that uh, slowly misappropriated the royalties. So Jerry Ragavoy originally wrote the music side of it, the composition, and just that one lyric part. And Time is on um, my side. Yeah. Yes, it is. So... But now I was reading up on him, too, and he also died the same year as Jimmy Norman. They died within four months of each other. One was July, one was October or November, max five months apart. Hmm. Did the two of them ever talk after this happened, or how did... No. Jerry Rackavoy denied everything until his death, but if you, you know, trace back all the evidence they had and you confront the lawyers with it the lawyers actually came clean they were presented with a preponderance of the evidence whereby it became clear oh so this money that's been shoveled into the pockets of the musicians and this former producer who you know was since alienated from the band should have belonged to this Jimmy Norman hmm. and most people as I'm speaking, have never heard his name before. He's quite Googleable by now, thankfully. But part of what we're pushing with the film is taking his name from being this obscure trivia question answer to being a name that people will actually hold in the pantheon with Keith Richards and Mick Jagger as it relates to what actually launched the Rolling Stones in America. Mm -hmm. hmm. So how often did that happen um, around that time, do you think, where people get hired to write lyrics and then don't really get any royalties or credit from it? It was rampant. It was absolutely rampant. Um, and it's kind of easy to make it a uh, sign of the times. And it also, it comes off, comes off racial in a lot of ways, because you could pretty well guess, um, in Jimmy Norman's case, that not a lot of representation, not a lot of education, not a lot of legal know-how, and the Rolling Stones were, by that time, big enough in Britain that they had a real engine driving their interests. They had business managers, they had pretty serious uh, highfalutin lawyers, and it wasn't that difficult to make things like this happen to Jimmy Norman and leave him without very much to show for it. Mm. Meanwhile, though, you fast forward to uh, just a couple of years before his death, the Jazz Foundation of America uh, reached out to, I believe it was Keith Richards, and they were able to say, look, we've got this guy who we've been supporting, 
who's a, a gem of the jazz industry, and as such, we're more than happy to foot the bill for his everyday subsistence. But you want to talk about time is on my side. And I, I was definitely not privy to the dialogue, but the end of that conversation was there inviting Jimmy Norman to a concert that the Rolling Stones had. This would have been in New York, circa 2007. And they actually brought him backstage and they shot a couple of pictures with him, I suppose gave him access to the craft services and shook his hand and sent him on his way. Age 70, having written the song 40 years previously. There's no 401k plan in live jazz. There's no retirement protection. So what they end up doing, they essentially, the, the term for it, and can quote Joe Rogan on this one, I don't know who he was quoting, but ride it till the wheels fall off the car. And it's, let's just see what happens more or less. Because they don't, it's not like you can go from age 50 performing live jazz around the world to becoming an insurance agent there's just that's not what you're trained for that's not what you're what you came from and it's not like you thought at age 19 when you got handed your first dollar to play in a you know a smoky club in the 1940s or 50s that you ever thought this will be my job from here I am the mid 1940s to the early 2000s. No one would have thought of it that way. And a lot of these stories, that's how it ends up going. They just, as far as they knew, oh my gosh, someone's paying me to play music in front of an audience. That's fantastic. And the world enjoys what they do and slowly, slowly, slowly turns their back. And it's the same biological entity, the same life force that was the 19-year-old that got the, the dollar to play these tiny clubs and, you know, getting started as a musician. But that life force is not paid the same level of attention 40, 50, literally 60 years later. Yeah. The, the story that got me, uh, this PR rep of Jimmy Norman's Frank Beecham, he brought up that there was a sack of lyrics. Uh, Jimmy Norman used to just, you know, he wrote them on not exactly slips of paper, but not exactly notebooks either. It was more like a, literally a sack of scraps of lyrics. And he was literally doing spring cleaning, about to toss out like a glad bag size sack of handwritten song lyrics because they were taking up too much space. Uh, Frank Beecham, who was doing all of his PR at the time, you know, I guess he recognized the lyrics because he's a music expert. And he was like, did you write this by hand in 1964? And he's like, yeah, it's my handwriting. Of course, you know my handwriting. And he's like, do you know how many music lovers would pay ridiculous sums to have this? And he didn't even buy it at the time. The next thing he knows, Frank's making those calls and he's able to garner tens of thousands for what was inside of that bag. And they were able to do that at several points through the final 10 years. Hmm. Where is the film at and how can people help you out with it? The film is headquartered at 
our homepage, musicneverdiesmovie.com. And from there, you can see some of the musicians we've interviewed. You can read our story in the director's words, Edward Hillel's vision of how the film is meant to reach the world and how valuable it is that such a story is being told. And you can also check out our trailer um, and you can further see a link to our crowdfunding campaign, which is on now on Indiegogo. And our campaign is set to wrap up presently on the 28th of August. Well, thanks for coming in again. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me in. Let's fast forward now to the current issues surrounding music ownership. We have a talk hosted by our friends at the Minnesota Music Coalition all about how to protect your music in the digital age. The panelists bring up the pros and cons of giving your music out for free. They also weigh in on Spotify and give some tips on crowdfunding. If you hear something you want to learn more about, I've most likely posted a link about it in the show notes at composerquest.com slash musicownership, one word. I'm Casey Ray from Future Music Coalition. We're a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit education, research, and advocacy organization for musicians. We've been around for about 14 years, and the organization got started right at that really interesting time when the digital disruption and peer-to-peer file sharing uh, was just about to happen. Uh, When we're talking about things like uh, your rights online, we've been, at FMC, we've been observant of all the federal policy level approaches to combating piracy. So the, the, a lot of the conversations about what do we do about piracy, and so that's at the you know, 40,000 foot level. But I'm actually more interested in, in what you guys have to say and having this conversation about what can you practically do as a creator. I have some ideas, uh, but you know, I think that in this marketplace, it's not just one fix or one approach. Um, there's probably a lot of different ways that you can encourage respect for your creations and also take the steps to, uh, I think monetizes them is probably the more um, important part of the conversation because there may be technically little that you can do, little to nothing that you can do to absolutely prohibit uh, the uh, you know, promulgation of your work without your permission. I'm Tom Loftus. Uh, I run a record label called Modern Radio. I founded it 15 years ago in the Twin Cities and continue to run it to this day. We've put out about 60 different releases, and it's a wide variety. Some of the larger artists that we've worked with are Mira, Yellow Swans, Deerhoof. Locally, there's a couple of the bands we've worked with currently are Stunning and Hollow Boys. And as far as digital downloads go, I think when the digital era came in, we really saw it as a great boon. Um, because it, it allowed you to distribute your music to further off places than we had the ability to previously. Having traveled abroad and not being able to, you know, having to like bring boxes of CDs sometimes, the notion of like sending a song out to someone in Japan or in China or in France was just really appealing and really enjoyed that. But I think when Spotify came around, and part of the reason I talked with Alan about being on it is that we had, we had at first embraced it because we had heard about it being used in Europe and that it was a really great way for fans to engage with music and have a way to really like have it and be portable and discover new stuff without having to pay a lot of money. The problem was is that after about six months into it we started breaking down our numbers with Spotify and saw what a lot of people are really been complaining about in the last two years which is 
that the tr it doesn't really translate financially at all. Their royalty rates are considerably lower than most everybody else's, and the the best breakdown that I can explain is that we had we saw in a six month period uh, revenues from digital sales half. We get a report every month from iTunes, eMusic, and collected through our digital distributor, and they showed us like everything that was happening digitally. So about forty percent of it was Spotify. That accounted for 3% of the income we were getting that month. So to say that there was like a disconnect for us was obvious. And so we made an intentional effort at that point to really actively move to, A, get off Spotify, which we found from our distributor was, there was an open window to do that because a lot of labels want to do that, and B, use other tools out there, uh, SoundCloud and Bandcamp, to move towards that. So it's something, you know, coming in in 1999 about... You know, at the same time as Future of Music, we've really had to navigate a lot of different changes over the last 15 years and still are doing it every day. <laughs> and uh, quickly, I realize I didn't introduce myself. I'm Ellen Stanley. I'm executive director of the Minnesota Music Coalition. And like these folks, I wear other hats as well. I'm also a, a DJ and also am a recording touring musician as well. So um, I'm hoping to learn a lot from this panel as well. So what I should be doing and not doing... Um, for uh, so yeah, we you brought up Spotify, and that actually, I think, I don't know if uh, folks have thoughts on Spotify in particular, and or about other alternatives to Spotify. Um, again, the issues that most artists and bands have is, well, I want to be on these services that are a lot of people are engaging in, but I want to get paid for my work because money is scarce if you're a musician. Um, do you guys have any alternatives, or do any of you out there have any thoughts on that? You know, it's interesting. I, my personal take on Spotify as a music fan, as somebody who used to write about music, uh, I think it's a powerful, powerful thing. And, you know, I was a, it's kind of one of those careful what you wish for things, because back when there wasn't this much ease of legal access to music in the digital realm, uh, I was, you know, evangelizing this idea of a celestial jukebox. Like, I was one of those people that was going around and saying, like, someday, if we can make it so convenient to access music that it's, uh, that you can do so on your devices, it's interoperable, that it, you know, it has a social or, or, or a feeling like a, a sharing component, then we will solve piracy by, by simply making, um, you know, music that accessible. You know, it hasn't really exactly worked out that way. Uh, there, people still get a lot of uh, you know content online without paying a damn thing, and also you know what a lot of us didn't think about is you know how this stuff the economics would work at scale. Um, Spotify isn't the only game in town on streaming on demand listening. Rhapsody has been around since 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a company called Mog that was around for a while that got acquired by Beats Music, which is a new entrant to the space. There's uh, RDO, which is a similar on demand listening uh, thing. And, you know, the question that, come, that we come back to uh, time and again with this is. With Pandora, everyone can yell about how little they get paid on Pandora, but you got to remember, Pandora is a radio station. Mm -hmm. it, it theoretically is not substitutional. You don't get to choose your song. A lot of people um, who listen to Pandora are what I would call the lean-back listener. Some of those people were never going to buy a record anyway because back in the old days of terrestrial radio, AM, FM radio, they didn't buy records then. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, That's a whole part of the marketplace that's going to be satisfied with that experience. Spotify and those other uh, services that are on-demand add a certain level of volition that uh, creates a difference in the law. 
how the licensing works for those services, and it also creates a difference in the econo- underlying economic rationale for participating in those services. And I think when you get to that area of substitutionality, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> you know, you really are on, on kind of dangerous grounds with what you're able to project as risk uh, on, on a project. Um, I have my I have a very similar experience. Um, we look at our numbers and we're like, wow, people are definitely listening to this on Spotify. I'm listening to our records on Spotify because it's so damn convenient. I've got Sonos, I've got Spotify, it works everywhere. I'm listening on Beats, we're in all those stores. But then at the end of the day, when I look at what's coming in, I'm like, oh my God, you can literally see that what used to be downloads are now streams. And uh, there's a tremendous cliff. It's a fiscal cliff. Let's just call it what it is. <laughs> there's a fiscal cliff there, and we've just you know driven right off it blithely. I don't know really what the answer is. I, I do know folks in the independent label community who do, who are strong uh, supporters of, of the streaming music service. Maybe they know something I don't, uh, but they, they also may be betting on the fact that eventually over time, as this becomes the dominant model, more uh, us- the user base will grow enough to make, make it worthwhile. But I just don't know that, that for certain labels and certain artists, Deerhoof is like my favorite band, by the way, um, <laughs> they're not going to get to that scale. Deerhoof is not a mass market band, man. They're super oh. weird, and that's why I love them. But like in the old days, like old days, <laughs> a band could sell enough CDs or enough vinyl or enough downloads and, and they could have kind of like a little cottage industry situation going. Um, oh, yeah. But it isn't the business model more t- going towards performance is where you make the money instead of... Um... Sure, but, you know, some genres, again, uh, there are some genres of music that are, are not really supported by the live music experience and, and vice versa. There's songwriters and composers who um, are not known for selling T-shirts. And then there's the fact that, uh, you know, certain... Uh, it takes a lot of money and there's a lot of risk in touring itself. It's not like a license to print money. Um, people lose regularly lose money on tours. In the old days when the industry was flush with cash, that's why you had tour support because the labels were making so much money over here that it didn't um, you know, bum them out too much to throw a couple dollars at you to keep you on the road because you know, you'd be in a city and then maybe somebody would go buy the record. But honestly, it costs a lot of money to tour and although merch sales and stuff like that is, is a significant important part of, of a touring artist's uh, revenue streams. If you look at it statistically, like our study, uh, money.futureofmusic.org, uh, our study of artist revenue streams shows that it's kind of statistically insignificant <laughs> merchandise, believe it or not. It's important if you're doing it and you've got it, but it certainly isn't uh, available to all categories of musician or composer. I think it also, to answer that, I think it also discourages people from recording the music. I, I think there was like a great interview with uh, Ian Mackay where he talked about it that, you know, it's great that all this music is accessible out there, but when you make it so that artists can't make any money off of recording anything, at a certain point, you, there's going to be a disincentive effort to making yeah. something. Are you going to then make a record so that you can pay for it with playing live? It's, like where, <laughs> like there's no source of revenue. And it, I mean, in a lot of ways, if you think of it, you know, as an analog to, like, the art world and the fine art world, like, imagine that you're just, like, you know, expected to give away, like, paintings or drawings. I mean, that's sort of what's become with the music world, and I think there has to be sort of a change of a conversation about how patronage with music works as well as uh, artists really kind of standing up and saying, you know, I put time and effort into this thing, and I created something in that I'm going to put it out there. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to buy someone's painting, but you're going to at least 
make it inherently valuable because it is. The people who listen to it, there's streams, there's people that want to enjoy this. I think on artists' behalf that they have to really stand for that. And Yeah, I mean, it's a challenging conversation because there's a lot of different ways you can use it uh, promotionally, but if you give it all away for free, how do you ever charge for it? What do you say to the argument, and basically, we have dialogue with people, even a lawyer, who have, who have said, yeah, but think of this. For those of us who are just starting to get our music out, mm-hmm. these people are saying, it doesn't matter if you get paid for the first one or two. You want to get out there and you want to have your music heard. What do you think of that argument? You know, I'm not going to lie to you. There is a there is a promotional benefit uh, at certain points in a career or a state, even a stage of a project where that might be true. And let's not forget that uh, AMFM Radio has never paid performing artists or labels in its entire history, and to this day, still is not legally obligated to do so. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, that 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 functioned for a long time as promotion. Um, I think that maybe for an artist at a certain stage in their career, having tons of videos on YouTube of them performing, you know, like just in their bedroom can be important. Um, it's the new version of local radio almost, you know what I mean? So I'm not going to say that there isn't, that, that artists can't get traction from being a little bit more promiscuous with their performances and compositions, but at some point, you know, that promiscuity may not be as attractive. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or it's just a phase you grew out of. Yeah. <laughs> you were experimenting in college. Yeah, I would, I'd, I'd echo that. I think, I mean, people always give stuff away to like press and the media. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, there's other gatekeepers out there, and there's other people that you want to put it in their hands. But if you're just giving it to everybody, it's like, why even charge to play a show? Then why even ever? Like, if, if you're not looking at it as a financial thing at all, and you just want to get out there, that part's really easy. But if you ever want to make any money on it, you have to think at some point of how you're going to leverage that. Yeah, yeah and I would, I would also say that if... As Tom said earlier, valuing your work is important because even if you just then make the conscious decision to give something away either to an individual or as a special promotion of a free download, you're you're being thoughtful about it. Like, what what am I actually going to gain out of it? Uh, maybe it's because this is this is a totally new artist, new project. I'm just going to try and put it in the right people's hands. They can talk about the free download. That's great. But I think you have to be really conscious of it because, again, if you don't value it in the beginning, no one else will. And and then if you try and start charging. People will be like, well, I, mm-hmm. I never had to before, you know. And I think it just becomes challenging, sort of like the old school retail model of, like, you put something on full price and then you can put it on sale. <laughs> it's hard, though. If yeah. you, you can never bump up the price usually, so um, unless you become really famous really fast, I guess. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, when I, I worked for uh, Red House Records, a, a locally-based independent label here in the Twin Cities for eight and a half years as a publicist, and, of course, people were always asking me, Oh, can you give us a free download, or can you? And basically, they would always say the same thing. Even even uh, independent filmmakers would be like, you know, it's going to be great promotion, you know. And, and that was always a joke around the office. It's like, oh, it's going to be great promotion, haha, which means there's no money in it. And that's not to say you should say no to everything, but I think being really mindful of what am I going to get out of it. I know Red House's approach was they just picked one free download from every album they yeah. did. On a personal level, like, I mean, I just really quickly tell a, tell a story. 
I was hanging out with a friend of mine, uh, Sandy Perlman, who's an older gentleman. He produced Blue Oyster Cult and, you know, made records for The Clash. And, you know, we were sitting around and he's in, on a porch somewhere and he said, Casey, what do you think the last credible album about the H.P. Lovecraft mythos was? Uh, do you know H.P. Lovecraft, 19th century we weird fiction writer? Okay. If you're a super nerd, you know who that is. You know, I'm kind of a weirdo, so I'm, I'm into H.P. Lovecraft. That's why I'm friends with Sandy. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go make it. And, you know, the weirdest thing was I didn't even remember at the time that I made that record that uh, maybe like uh, six months before I had started a Twitter account as H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> and I was tweeting things about being in the DM at the DMV in like weird eldritch prose, you know what I mean? Like I was doing that whole whole thing. It was like the week that everyone opened up a fake, you know, Twitter handle later. William Shakespeare saying this and, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> saying that. And so I operated that for a while and slowly but surely it got bigger and bigger and bigger and I was satisfying my audience just on Twitter for yucks. I hadn't even connected the two in my mind because I'm dense. And and so like I built up that audience and had rabid fans. I didn't even know it was big until one day on H.P. Lovecraft's birthday. I don't even know when that is. I'm not that big of a Lovecraft fan. I was getting all these like, happy birthday, Mr. Lovecraft. He's been dead for like a hundred years. You know? And then, then it dawned on me. I made this good record. It was kind of like in the Blue Oyster Cult vibe. I did it because like Sandy put this idea in my head and I finished it and it was good. And then I was like, I am going to flip this switch now. Click. And I was like, still in character, this this individual named The Contrarian has released a curious record based on my mythos. And then everybody bought physical copies. I had to reprint, I had to repress the record. I pressed a thousand, had to press another thousand. It was insane. You know, I created incentives around it. I, I'm a writer too, so like I wrote a, a pastiche of Lovecraft, an original short story. That got printed in a horror anthology, a physical book. I mean, it was nuts, but I knew my audience, I knew my market and I capitalized on it gave a bunch of stuff away uh, but it was like you know I you, sometimes you stumble into through serendipity or some other happenstance a way to to combine promotion with you know with a commercial outcome uh, one other thing that I've done that was really weird and I'll stop talking uh, I, when Twitter first started I, I was giving away mp3s on Twitter and I I did it like an old radio like kind of promotion like we got. We'll take the next ten callers, and we'll get a blah 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 blah, which is ridiculous. You can't run out of an MP3. <laughs> and so I did it, and I'd get ten emails. I just harvested ten emails, and I'd be like, well, "Okay, we're going to keep the lines open a little longer." <laughs> Boom, twenty emails. <laughs> Insane. Like you're not going to run out of an MP3. So if you're creative about how you do this Creating stuff, creating urgency you know, too. You, yeah, exactly. If you if you think it through, or, or are willing to even have fun with the idea of this stuff, then you, you're probably going to be surprised if it's a favorable outcome and you're not going to be all that upset if it was a wash. I could, I'd echo on that that we had a friend uh, out in L.A. that known for years that made films and he was making horror films and, you know, he was friends with a number of the artists on our label and he put together this film and he said, hey, you know, I need some music for it. I'd, I'm, I'm going to probably lose a little bit of money making this film myself because in that world it's sort of a similar conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like, can I use some of the music? And I said, sure, use whatever you want. And, you know, talked to all, all of our artists and said, hey, a friend of ours wants to make this film. I just said, if, you know, we just had a conversation. It's like, if you ever make any money on this, um, great. You know, then, then we'll figure out a way. Well, um, we went into it. He put it together and all that, and he'd shown it and... Uh, some small places and all of a sudden he got a couple reviews and IFC Late Night picked it up and Stephen King gave it a favorable review in Entertainment Weekly and he sent us money for all of the tracks in this small independent film that 
can find on Netflix now. What was the movie? Entrance. It's like huh. a weird horror film. And so it's like watching uh, it where like it goes from like this fun party to where like people are getting like killed and like all these bands are friends with are in it. And it's like it was great. It was like something we're all like, this is fun. This is something that we would have wanted to put our art towards anyway, supporting our friend. And it ended up working out for money. I think when you're if you develop those relationships with people and you really build an audience that's not just your fans but other creators that you you get opportunities to do fun stuff and sometimes it does bode well financially. So I think it's not to say, you know, don't put your stuff on Spotify and don't give it away. It's like you have the power. But you had the relationship, too, with yes. that guy where there was a level of trust. Because obviously, yep. mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I know that since I know there's a, a lawyer in the house, I know Ken would be like, what? You just did it on a handshake? But, I mean, that's the whole thing. There was that level of trust. For most people, if it's someone you don't know, a filmmaker, you know, being like, yeah, sure, if it makes yeah. makes money, I'll send a check, you know. But, but you know, it worked because you had that relationship, and I, I think that was the key. Um, I had a question. We've been talking a little bit about the promotions end of things, about how to how to utilize it, um, different opportunities without giving away the bank. But what about like protection? Like, what would be your like must for every say an independent artist who doesn't have a label or an agent or a manager? What are the like couple things they just have to do right away if they haven't already? If you want to be able to uh, protect your work and, and be eligible for statutory damages if somebody infringes your, your rights, you've got to register it with the United States Copyright Office. It's a pretty low bar, and it's not, hard, it's not you know, terribly expensive, but you, you do that, and that gives you the option of going after somebody for money if they're, do, if they're making money off of you in a way that you did not um, authorize. Uh, another thing that you can do is like trademark your, your band name, for example, in case there's somebody else there that kind of wants to squat on your, your brand or, or reputation. You know, these are things that aren't totally insane. Um, In terms of getting paid, uh, if you're getting played on internet radio like Pandora, you can sign up for Sound Exchange Mm -hmm. for free, which is the royalty uh, collection and distribution nonprofit organization that collects the money and gives it to the artists and the sound copyright owners. And, you know, the cool thing about that is even if you're on a label, that money goes, your half goes directly to you. It doesn't pass through to your label. So for an artist, it's kind of like a no-brainer. It doesn't necessarily protect your rights, but it gives you a heck of a better chance of getting paid if somebody's performing your music on digital radio. Sound Exchange. S-O-U-N-D Exchange. Dot com. That's great. Does Sound Exchange collect ASCAP? No, ASCAP, uh, CSAC, and BMI are for the publishing right in music. Two copyrights in music, so at at its most basic, uh, if you write a song... Notes on paper, lyrics, that's one copyright. That's the publishing uh, copyright. If you record it um, on tape, hard drive, you know, whatever, uh, then that is the sound copyright. The creator owns both at inception. They're automatically under U.S. law copyrighted. To be eligible to have the extra protections and statutory damages, you will register those with the United States Copyright Office. If you sign to a label, uh, depending on who your label is, you transfer that sound copyright to them, and if you sign with a publisher, they, uh, they will help you exploit the composition. When you mentioned your Lovecraft story, uh, you were basically indicating that there's still a market segment that likes the physical copy. They do. And I've read that in Germany, for example, CD sales are still really high. Mm -hmm. Is that because their economy is really good? This uh, trend hasn't hit them yet, or is there something else we can learn from There that? are so many factors. I, I don't mean to just monopolize the conversation, but there are so many factors at play. I think collectability is certainly one. I was actually really impressed with this Lovecraft thing because I, at the time, considered CD a dead format. 
and and I didn't press vinyl of this. I actually sold CDs, and I was like, "Who the hell wants this?" Uh, you know. But I th I think appealing to people's um, you know urge to own an artifact is certainly a good play if you know who's going to be motivated by that. That's why vinyl is still growing. Okay. <clears throat> I want to go back about the protection part because really the first couple agreements, if you will, or understandings, even before you go out and file anything anywhere, is between or among the songwriters. It would be a super simple, we wrote this song, you know, you get X percent, you get everything, just on a napkin. You yep. know, that, that is probably the most important thing for songwriters. And the second most important thing would be who owns the recording? So once you record it, who, who owns this recording? You know, is it the players in the group, or did some play for money and then pretty owned by a company that maybe they don't, whatever. Just even engaging in that conversation sets expectations and the agreement can be reduced to even an email or just the simplest of writing. It might not qualify as an enforceable contract, but obviously sets expectations and represents what people were thinking. <coughs> because if you go out, you know, into the cyber world with unclean hands, mm -hmm. it's going to cause a problem. Of course, it can also break up your band before you make that. <laughs> yeah, do you want to? Yeah. You don't want to break up after you've made the record. You'd rather break up before then. No, it's imp it's super important. Communicate uh, communication between band members. I feel like is that that is like the death knell of a band. If you don't start talking about those things early on and mm -hmm. kind of agree to what you're all doing as you go on further. It, doesn't get better. It's all about expectations. It's really incredible how different expectations can sure. be. Now maybe with a band member, maybe of their parents, depending on your age and who's paying for what, you know, it's, yep. uh, that factors into a lot of politics factor into it. And then in response to this question, you said something at the earlier um, lecture about, uh, Casey, about there's 42 discrete mm -hmm. revenue sources. Mm -hmm. Everyone here should know what they are and learn that how to pull a penny from that source. Yeah, go to money.futureofmusic.org. I, I think we called it the you know 42 st uh, streams or something like that. We break down by copyright and and essentially role uh, what these revenue streams are and how they attach. And it's pretty fun. It's easy to read. It's like a little pull down menu. You're like, okay, bing, donk, and the thing comes down and explains it. So it's not your eyes will not glaze over. It's money.future what? money.futureofmusic.org. It's our standalone site for our re uh, research into artist revenue streams. And for and for people looking, I think this is a two, like it's changing all the time. The landscape is adding new partners on all the time. I would encourage you to look at two different websites, both Noise Trade and Pledge Music. Both of these are newer entrants that are a different form of crowdfunding. Most of you are familiar probably with Kickstarter. These are primarily about artists having some control over who they're giving away stuff to and connecting with them. So when, if you're putting your stuff on Spotify or RDO or Pandora, you're not really connecting with that audience that you give, you know, that the music it's is going to for free. It's yeah. passive. With Noise Trade, you can give away your whole album or parts of an album or whatever, but what you get back in exchange is an email address and someone that can be that you know where they are and a zip code so you could figure out, okay, there's all these people downloading it here, and you have a way to contact them. You can go tour and play there. You can't get that from Spotify, and they have the option of leaving a tip. Pledge Music is like Kickstarter. You set a goal number, but instead of Kickstarter where it's an actual number amount, it's amount towards a goal as a percentage. So you get to see how close they are to hitting their goal, and then you create 
incentives much like Kickstarter where it could be doing a vinyl copy of a thing and it's a great way for artists to really gauge where their audience is at so with the physical you could be seeing okay we're going to put this out there but we're not going to do this unless we get a certain amount of people giving and I mean with the physical there there's some labels still out there boutique labels that exclusively do physical and in some cases do really uh, small things that are incredibly successful there's a uh, a label out in LA called Not Not Fun that only does physical. They don't have anything online, and they do vinyl, cassette, and some CD runs. But they mostly are vinyl and cassette, and their stuff sells through. And they put yep. they put out hundreds and hundreds of records, and they've built an audience for their artists over time. And they're not interested or worried about having it online because they're more interested in engaging the audience they have and not allowing for them to be passive. And then I think what that ends up creating is a real uh, patronage where it's like, okay, I don't buy this, it's gonna disappear, and the next best thing I'm gonna get is a tape from a friend, but if you really like a band, you, you kinda want a little bit more from a tape from a friend, and if you really like them, you also wanna support them. You wanna like put money in their pocket. You were in a room, 50 people, 100 people, and you saw them right there. It's not like somebody off in the universe who's stealing music from You wanna support them, and you. I think creating ways where you make that easy for fans to connect to you in a way where they can support you is a good thing. And you can there's a million different ways you can go about it. You can, you know, have a whole Twitter conversation or it can be just like people in a room. So the ultimate way to protect your work is to not even put it out on the web. It sounds like I mean in a way Potentially. just selling physical. I mean it, it I mean it I think it depends on what your scope is. I think with a lot of esoteric and music that that's that you're creating and a you particular know your audience. audience. So you're yeah. already connected with them. I think that's the other. Yeah. I mean, obscurity has almost become a, a chic. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, it's become kind of hip. I, I, you can see that in like certain genres, like that witch house genre or whatever. They're they're using unpronounceable symbols and triangles, and you can't internet search it, or you name your band girls. <laughs> Do a search for that. Uh, so you know, there's all kinds of different approaches to engender folks to ha have that feeling of exclusivity. Uh, you know, vinyl um, releases are, are really amazing. Like, there's a label called Numero Group in Chicago. They do exclusively reissues of uh, old soul and, and funk records. Uh, you know, but they take a lot of time to research it, and they're cu essentially they're curating it. Uh, I wanted to talk about patronage real quick, though, okay, if we yeah. could. Yeah, sure. Uh, then pledge we'll get to pledge music is super interesting. It actually predates Kickstarter, uh, but predating even pledge music is our friend Jill Sobuel, <laughs> who who uh, was a singer songwriter. Kind of uh, in the '90s, she had her her biggest hit. It was called "I Kissed a Girl," but mm -hmm. not Katy Perry's version of it. And it was a big hit. And she's been on a major label. She's been on independent labels. She's been self released. Well, at one point, uh, when Kickstarter was just like a gleam in a developer's eye, she came up with the idea that she was going to sell from her website basically a, a list of incentives that would fund the production of her album. And being Jill, it was really fun and eccentric and cool. Uh, you know, it went from like you know, like a, being listed in the thank yous or whatever, all the way up to come and sing on our record. And she said, can't sing, no problem, we'll fix it in post or whatever. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think she had set very modest uh, goals for herself, but she may ended up making like 80 grand to fund that record. Now, your results will vary. Um, Jill's, Jill's um, success here was based on the fact that she had spent the last uh, couple decades cultivating a super dedicated audience that she knew she could turn to with this stuff. Um, you 
know, sometimes with the crowdfunding thing, I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think the tip jar is a solution to the all of the industry's woes. It's an aspect of your overall um, business plan or or project plans. I mean, if I and the incentive's got to be good too, because like if I see another signed kick drum on Kickstarter, I'm just gonna like my head's gonna explode. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> or if you're gonna do a CD, uh, this is the one that's my biggest pet peeve. Do not charge more than what you would charge at your release show for that CD to someone who wants to be an early adopter, yeah. <laughs> and and offer something extra. Even if it's like a handwritten postcard that has a that has a value that goes beyond something. But if you're just like, hey, it's signed. If somebody goes to your release show and buys it at full price and you don't sign it, you're an asshole. <laughs> Plain and simple. Like that's that. Should be rewarding the you people. Should, who you'd be have rewarding the people record. that said your record's not even started. And I'm going to give you this money for it. Do something extra. It doesn't have to be necessarily monetary. That maybe you invite them over, or like send them the CDs first. Yeah, I mean something simple. Send them the mm-hmm. CDs first. If you're putting together a vinyl record and you're doing something with the packaging that's really intricate, invite them over to help put it together. You think like, well, I'm going to ask them for free labor. You know, buy them pizza and beer and have them hang out. A lot of people actually, that's like awesome. Like you get to hang out with an artist that you like their music. And you get to see the process, you get to feel part of it. That's feeling like being a real patron, and that's what it, you know, and that you have more people that are actually connected to what you're doing versus just sort of these simple things where it's like, hey, I'm going to do this album, give me this much amount of money, or hey, we're going on tour, and your plan is to do it no matter what. Mm-hmm. I, I think it it sort of goes against that whole notion. And frankly, if those things start going away, if Kickstarter starts going away, as a good revenue stream, it's because of the way that yeah. artists are really engaging with it, that they're not following through. Some of the biggest cases where that's happened between Animal Collective or even with um, Amanda Palmer, you know, you could see how much she made, and then all of a sudden she's like, hey, I want some artists to play for free mm-hmm. at shows. That <laughs> turned into an issue for her because all these musicians' uh, unions were just like, why are you asking people to play for free when you got over a million dollars on your Kickstarter. I think, of course, Amanda takes the Oscar Wilde approach to right. publicity where <laughs> as long as they're talking about Amanda Palmer, yeah. it's okay with Amanda and, Palmer. And it, and it worked for her, but I think it can, if you don't, if you're not thoughtful about it, it can kind of blow up in your face and you really do have to think about yourself. You, if you are making music and you're a fan of music, think about yourself in that position. What would I want from an artist and you know you don't have to give up everything. You don't have to change your personality and become an extrovert overnight. But you do have to be thoughtful about it. Do you had a question for well, Just not not fun. Is that what you said? Yep. Is the, that N-O-T, N-O-T, or? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then was it um, noise trade or noise train? Noise, noise trade. trade. Uh, okay. One of the guys that uh, runs that uh, works for that company is in town yeah. too. Chris yes. Moon. Yeah. I, they they are doing something really cool that I think artists could use to both engage audiences and build their email list because um, I mean if most of you don't know already that having an email list is the most important thing you can do Facebook is going to become increasingly more useless to you mm-hmm. if you look at all the numbers the percentage of how many people you're reaching of the people that have actually opted in and likened you is decreasing every day and you it's, it's because Facebook it's it needs to make money they they're public. They're a public entity. They need. They need to sell ads. And so, for bigger companies, it gives an opportunity to reach audiences. But for smaller artists, how many of you are going to spend fifty bucks to promote a post? Yeah. 
Well, and also I would say it's still it's that personal thing. It's like yeah. it comes in your inbox. Now mm-hmm. we're so inundated with so many things on Facebook. Like I don't even see half the events that show up. But if I get an email that I've personally chosen to do to give my email in whatever capacity, whether it was from a free download promotion, the whole reason I would have participated is because I like the band or like the artist or I signed up on their email list at a show. I think it shows a level of engagement. And when something comes in in my inbox, I pay attention. So I'd say... And from my experience as an artist, it's the number one way people get to shows, even if I have a big article in the paper. Uh, did you have a, sorry, yeah, another question, uh, Amanda Palmer, you mentioned her, but Animal, what, what was that? Animal Collective did a massive Kickstarter where the band was going to be going to Africa for this music festival and play there. And they had all these rewards that they never ended up following through on. Mm-hmm. And they got a lot of heat for it. And there's a place where people can respond and Kickstarter to like, the campaign where it's like, hey, where is this coming? And they never responded. Mm-hmm. And I think what they ended up doing was completely changing tracks and they got a lot of like um, interactions from, from media outside that were like, this is kind of weird, you're going into this place with what you're doing. And and I heard a couple different ways of how they resolved it, but the, the result, frankly, was just a lot of negative press that I'd say has affected their popularity. Mm-hmm. That's the worst PR you could have is that that you're going right after your fans and you're not supporting them. That's the worst thing you could do. If you were going to go with Kickstarter Pledge Music, which one would you pick out of the two? With any kind of format for, you know, generating money or whatever, it depends on what you're doing. Maybe maybe what you're doing, you want to look at grants. Right. Or, or, I mean, some people, if, and this is going back to the Jill Sobule days, a lot of, and I know some songwriters that still do this just because Kickstarter has a lot of requirements and you have to kind of stay on track with their timeline. The other thing you can do is just really old school. I mean, if you're playing shows in town, some people just still have like forms they fill out, you know, where it's like, okay, I'm going to give my check or my credit card number or some cash and I'll sign up to to be it. And that way you get their information, you send them a copy of the album early. It could be something really simple that you design yourself. Whatever works for you. We put out a record in one of my old bands in like 1997 or 6 and we pre-funded it. We did it actually using the internet as well. Um, you know, there was a sound sample. We collected email addresses, not many of those, but we did collect Harvest uh, mailing lists, and we sent a postcard saying, you know, send us a check or send us $20 in the mail, and, and we'll give you the record when it came out. And we fulfilled it, and we everyone that paid prepaid for the record got it. And this is like in, like, dinosaur era. Uh, there's also a third site called Indiegogo you might want to mm-hmm. check out. Uh, the difference with some of these is, like, Kickstarter won't fund won't release the capital that you raise unless you meet your goal. I think uh, different ones like Pledge Music, Indiegogo have different requirements. Sometimes you can keep the amount that, that is contributed even if you don't meet your goal. So you could probably want to just shop just shop around. So uh, I guess so. Five, four, yeah. so. I mean, sometimes you see a lot of broken hearts on these. Like people and it's a lot like, of time to do some of these mm-hmm. programs. Yeah. So yeah. shop around. Uh, Indiegogo, Pledge Music, uh, Kickstarter. Um, you know, there's a lot of... There's, I mean, we had we had Yancey from Kickstarter on campus about a year and a half ago, and there, you know, I asked how many sites are like you, and it's like it's, there's at least like four or five hundred. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a ton. There, I, there's Rocket Hub. There's there's any number of these sites. I mean, Kickstarter is the one that probably has the most amount of volume of people using it. Indiegogo's probably close by. Pledge Music specifically music. So for those of you who are interested in music and having it in that realm, that can be a better thing, but they, they all work differently and it depends on how you want to use it, but all of them take time and they're totally different things that uh, just because they're out there and you can use them, 
doesn't mean that they're going to gain you access. I mentioned to Jim McGuinn over there that there's a website called Forgetify that uh, lists all the songs that have never been played on God, Spotify. I love that. Uh, it's, over, so it's over like 20 million. So if you think that just getting it out there these days will do it, it's like I created the greatest thing in the world. If you're not building an audience, you've got a billion, literally billions of songs out there. So you got to be doing other things as well. Yeah. We have time for just one more question, and I think you were the next one, unless you do something else. I just, color commentary, it's kind of going back. The uh, email comment is great because you own that real estate. Yes. And that's a big thing in terms of the, the theme is protection. Mm -hmm. You own yep. that real estate, yep. and, and yep. Facebook and Twitter, you don't. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, so that's a good investment in cyber property, uh, as well as the relationship with, the, with your fans. Uh, with respect to raising money, uh, I would not recommend that people just take money from people. I'd really be going because there's securities laws that prohibit uh, solicitation of investments, and then expectation issues. People don't exactly know what they're maybe doing. They might be invest. Well, I own that now. I'm an investor. I or my expectations are that I should get something that's not defined. When you're in the programs, they're defined, mm -hmm. like yeah. Kickstarter and whatnot. Uh, if you remember the Wilco record, A Ghost is Born, that back in the day when there was actually like records that were promo and had long lead times before it actually came out, it was very clear that A Ghost was Born was being pirated. Yeah. Everybody knew that. And so Wilco actually set up a website where you could PayPal donations and be like, hey, we know that some of you are getting it for free and it's not out yet. Get it. If you are getting it and you'd like to throw some money our way, We'd appreciate it. Now, it's not, I mean, the tip jar is not, you know, the, the best thing in the world. But for an artist like that, that actually sort of makes sense, especially when they're, they're tied to a larger label and they're already going to get a lot of bandwidth out there. I think for smaller artists, you know, you don't probably worry about the issue of piracy. If the first thing that you're worried about in making a record and starting to play music is piracy, you're probably coming at it at the wrong <laughs> way. Um, I mean, frankly, in general, if you're coming at making music because you want to make a lot of money. I always say this to people, it's like there's a lot uh, easier ways to make a lot of money than in music. Like some of them are illegal, but, but, but generally like if you're making music because you think you're going to get rich, like be prepared to be disappointed. If you're making music to, you know, reach an audience and have a voice, you're always going to be successful in the rest of it. You just have to figure out how you're going to leverage it. And on that note, we're going to wrap things up. Um, but I want to thank everyone for coming in. Thanks to Casey and Tom for being part of this panel. Thanks for joining me for this special episode of Composer Quest. The Minnesota Music Coalition hosts talks like this all the time, so make sure to visit mnmusiccoalition.org. I'm looking forward to starting up Season 3 of this show in September. If you're a composer, remember that we have our 10th Composing Quest going on right now which is to write a string quartet piece based on autumn. Send a PDF of the music, along with a MIDI file, to charlie at composerquest.com on or before September 1st. If you're in Minnesota, come check out the premiere of these string quartets on Sunday, September 21st, 6 p.m. at the Underground Music Cafe. And as always, stay tuned to Composer Quest News on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and happy composing! <laughs>